Good morning. We've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians for a couple years now, and we're trying to leave it. Kind of like we're being hooked by something that I just can't get out of the book for. And that's a convicting verse, probably the most convicting verse in all of Scripture, if you're serious about what the Bible says. And that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. That's challenging. That's a little unsettling. Test yourself. Examine yourself. See if Jesus is really in you. Because maybe, though you've been claiming you're a Christian for years and years and years, you failed the test. Now what's the test? We began to look at this last week. John wrote an entire book, 1 John. He gets to the end of it in chapter 5 and he says, I wrote all this so that you will know that you have eternal life. He wrote an entire book so that we as Christians would know, have confidence, have assurance that we are believers. Know that Jesus Christ is in us. Know that we are for real. And in that book, he gives us three tests. He gives us the theological test, the moral test, and the social test. He gives us a theological test as we saw last week. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. How do you know? Because you pass the theological test. You believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then the flip side of that is in 1 John 2.2 where he says, Who is the liar? but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. If you say, I'm a Christian, but you don't claim that Jesus is the Christ, you're a liar. Second test is the moral test. In 1 John 2.3, we read this, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. And the flip side, 1 John 2.4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Theological test, I believe the right thing about Jesus. The moral test, I desire with all my heart to follow him. I call him Lord and I do what he says. And then the social test. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. And the flip side, 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. So a genuine Christian believes, obeys, and loves. 
Now, that's not how you become a Christian. That's how you know you're a Christian. You become a Christian by grace, but the way you see God's grace at work in your life is that you believe, you obey, and you love. And then as we started to look at it last week, John in the same letter presents it in another way. He shows us how we can examine ourselves. And he looks at it from two angles. There is the subjective angle and the objective angle. The subjective angle is explained in 1 John 5.10 where he says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. There is an internal witness. There is a subjective witness in every person. I can't see it. Only you know. But the Spirit of God in you, He is the subjective witness, bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And the commentary on that is in Romans chapter 8, where chapter 8 and verse 16 says, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You see, if you are a genuine child of God, you know it. And you know it because the Spirit of God has come in you, to you at the point of salvation and He bears witness with your spirit that you are for real. And how does He do that? Go to Romans chapter 8 with me. Because in the context of that verse, He gives us three ways that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Romans chapter 8. The first is, he gives us a new direction. In fact, look, look back at verse 12. He says, so then, brethren. Some of your Bible says, say, therefore. What he's saying is, on the basis of what I just said, I'm going to say something else. And you know what he just said? If you go back to verses um, 9 to 11, he says four times that the Spirit dwells in you. 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 Therefore, he says, in verse 12, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then he says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Of God. What does the Spirit of God do? He comes inside of me and He leads me in an entirely new direction. And what is that direction? Away from the old and into the new. He convicts me of things in my life that I need to change. And He not only gives me the desire, He gives me the power to put those things to death in the strength of the Lord. So I have a whole new direction. And that's evidence to me that I'm a child of God. This is really synonymous with what Jesus said. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they do what? They follow me. I say a lot of times that God spoke to me. I have never heard his audible voice. You know how God speaks to me? He speaks to me through his word, and he speaks to me through his spirit, the inner witness inside of me. I hear his voice, and I follow him. Where do I follow him? I've never heard him say, go to Kansas City. 
He's not leading me so much physically. Not that he couldn't, and not that he doesn't, but the primary place he's, he's leading me is not physically. He is leading me spiritually. He is leading me out of death into life, away from the old things that are associated with my old life and into the new things associated with the Spirit of God. And I sense that in myself, that he is leading me, and that is a confirmation to me that I am a child of God. In fact, he says in verse 10 of chapter 8 that I am a, an alive spirit in a dead body. I am a new man in an old body. Now, before I was a believer, I was a dead spirit in a dead body. And where was I going? To death. Now that I'm a believer, I still got the old body. I don't look any different. In fact, I look worse. But I'm a live spirit in this old body, and I have the Spirit of God in me bearing witness with my spirit. And what is he doing? He's taking me in a new direction. I want to get away from the old and get into the new. And that is an evidence to me. That is that subjective test that says, yes, you are a child of God. If you're going through life and you don't have any conflict, there's no conflict between sin and or, or your old life and your new life, then that's evidence to you that you need to put a big question mark there and say, am I really a believer? Because a believer always has a struggle inside between the new and the old. And if it's not there, then you're not his child. Second way we see the subjective test is that he gives us a new relationship. Look at verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, if you're not saved, you may believe in God. You may respect God. You may hold Him in high esteem. You may even go to his house now and then. You may display a kind of reverence for him. You may refer to him as the man upstairs or the good Lord. But only a true believer relates to him as father. And only by the Spirit of God do I find my spirit crying out and calling him dad? That word Abba is an Aramaic word. It's one of the first words formed on the lips of an infant. It's the most affectionate term. It's Abba. It's like dada today. I find myself going from not even wanting to be around God to calling God dada. What happened? The Spirit of God came inside of me. You see, that's not natural. Galatians 4, 6 says, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What's natural? We view God as distant. What's natural? We view God as detached and intimidating. We view God as someone to be feared. 
Romans 3.11 says, no one seeks after God. Romans 5.10 says we were enemies of God. Romans 8.7 says we were hostile toward God. Our natural response to God before we're saved is to do exactly what Adam did. When he sinned, what did he do? He ran and he hid from God. And God had to come and find him. That's what we do naturally. We run from God because we know we're accountable to him. But when the Spirit of God comes within me, he bears witness that I am now a child of God because I am now calling this one that I feared, Daddy. Now, that doesn't mean you can't formulate that word on your lips. You know, as an unbeliever, you can say, Abba. You could call God, Daddy. But see, you really wouldn't understand it. And you wouldn't mean it. It's the same as uh, 1 Corinthians 12.3 where Paul said, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now you can say Jesus is Lord, but you can't mean it. And you can't live it. And the same is true here. It's not about the words that you say. It's about what you comprehend and what you understand in your spirit that he is now your dad. So the Spirit inside me transforms my view of God from distant and formal and intimidating to intimate. Now, names mean a lot. I mean, what you call somebody means a lot. My wife calls me honey. She's got some other names for me that I won't even share with you. My kids call me dad. My grandkids call me papa. Now, you can't call me by any of those names. Don't come up and call me honey. Don't come up and call me dad. And definitely don't come up and call me papa. I'll clock you. But see, they have a special relationship with me. And so they have special names for me. When you become a child of God, you now have a special name for God. And that is Dad. And this, this is, this is uh, really radical because when you think about it, the Jews in the Old Testament never called God dad. They didn't even call him father. In fact, they didn't even want to say his name. In the Old Testament, when, they re- when the Jews read the Old Testament and they came to that word Yahweh or Jehovah, they wouldn't even pronounce that name out of fear of God. It was that God was so fearful and so far away and so holy that they wouldn't even, it wouldn't even say his name. And now we come to the New Testament, and what do we find? Because of God's grace, we are able to call this one who is still just as holy and just as fearful and just as majestic, we get to call him Daddy. Now, I did a little studying this week, and I found out that the word Abba is only used three times in the Bible. 
It's used in Mark 14.36 where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and He's praying the night before His crucifixion. He's distressed. He's burdened. He's agonizing. He's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And He prays this, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So it's in his great despair, in his desperate need, that he cries out, Abba. The second time it's used is right here in Romans 8.15. It says, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the final time is in Galatians 4.6. It says, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Both times it's used of us, we're said to be crying it out. That word cry is the Greek word kroxon. It's the word used of Jesus on the cross when He cried out and gave up His Spirit. So the context that he's talking about us saying Abba, for Jesus was at his greatest point of need. For us, it's when we're crying out to the Father. What does that tell us? I think it tells us that the test is not what you say to God when all is calm and hunky-dory in your life. The test is what you say to God when you're distressed, when you're crushed, when you're sweating great drops of blood, when you're going to be executed tomorrow, what do you say to God? You know, people in trouble usually say God's name. You notice that? Oh my God, God help me. People in trouble tend to cry out to God. Or people in trouble tend to curse God. Have you noticed that? When you're crushed, something comes out. It's either a cry to God, it's a curse to God, or it's dad. You see, the real test of who you are is when you're crushed. And when you're crushed, do those words come out that say, God, I don't want you. God, why did you do this to me? God, you are cursed. Or are the words that come out of you when you're crushed, are they, Dad, I'm coming to you. I'm coming home. I'm embracing you because you're the only answer for my need. Spirit of God gives us a new direction out of the old into the new. Gives us a new relationship. God is now our daddy. Now, I don't know about you, but little kids, what happens when they get hurt? They run to mommy or daddy one. If you're really a believer and you're getting crushed, where are you going to go? You're going to go straight to daddy and climb in his lap. Third, He gives me a new ambition. 
And we see that in verses 17 and 18. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. As an unbeliever, my ambition was the comforts of this world. My ambition was the pleasures of this world. My ambition was the applause of this world. When I became a believer, the Spirit of God came inside of me and He gave me a new ambition. And that new ambition is to be glorified with Christ. And nothing in this world compares with that. In fact, in light of that, as it tells us in this Scripture, I am actually willing to suffer in this present time because I am so confident in the glory to come. I'm willing to lose everything in this world in light of the glory that is mine in Jesus Christ. Now, every, almost every non-Christian I know would really like to find out what is the minimum requirement for heaven. You notice that? How can I stay as comfortable as possible and still make it to heaven? How can I manage to live the way I want to live and still end up in heaven. I want to go to heaven. I just don't like this narrow road that lays out in front of me. You mean I have to do that? Do I have to go to church? Do I have to give up things? Do I have to sacrifice? Do, do I have to do all that stuff? You see, anything that God would tell us to do when we're not a believer receives a response of reluctance and hesitation and unwillingness. So let me ask you this. How about you? Can you identify within yourself a willingness to suffer for God's glory? A willingness to endure hardship? A willingness to sacrifice yourself? Or in your heart of hearts, are you still saying, what's the minimum requirement? What's the minimum cost? What's the minimum inconvenience? You see, if the Spirit of God is really in you, He is giving you a new ambition. And that is future glory with Christ. And along with that comes a willingness to suffer in the presence. Great example of that is Peter and the apostles. In Mark chapter 14, they left Jesus in the garden and they fled. A few chapters later, we come to Acts chapter 5 and verse 41. And it says, They walked away from the whipping rack, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. What happened? The Spirit of God came in Acts chapter 2 and gave them a new ambition. You see, if you're not a Christian, then you agonize over every divine request. 
It kind of cuts into your space. It's heavy. It's burdensome. If you're a true believer, you find yourself saying, I don't care what it costs. I don't care where it takes me. It doesn't matter how you use me. I don't mind if you inconvenience me because I no longer hold my life as dear to myself. In fact, it's no longer my life because I am bought with a a price. I am dead to sin and alive to God. And so, Lord, here it is. If it comes with ridicule, I'll take it. If it comes with persecution, I'll take it. If it comes with suffering, I'll take it. If it comes with death, I'll take it. I have a new ambition, and that is to be glorified with Jesus Christ. And I don't need to tell you that that doesn't come naturally. That's the work of the Spirit of God in your life. And that's how He bears witness with you that you are a child of God. So there's the subjective angle of salvation. It's the witness within The Holy Spirit of God gives me a new direction away from the old into the new. He gives me a new relationship, affection for God as my Father. And He gives me a new ambition to be glorified with Christ no matter what it costs. Now let me pause right there and ask you if you can recognize the subjective aspects in your life. Because only you really know. Because this is an internal subjective examination. Do you have a new direction? Do you sense the conflict of being a new spirit in an old body? Of being an alive spirit in a dead body? Are you putting to death the deeds of the body and moving into those new areas by the power of the Spirit of God? Do you have a new relationship? Do you find yourself drawn to God as your father and crying out to him in times of need, Daddy? And do you have a new ambition? Do you find yourself saying, my greatest ambition is not the things of this world. My greatest ambition is to be glorified with Jesus Christ. And when you hear about somebody who has suffered for Jesus Christ, do you find that sort of godly pride welling up inside of you and you say, I want to identify with that guy because he's standing where I want to stand. Then there's a second angle. And that's the objective angle. And for that, I want you to look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10. First John chapter 3 and verse 10. He says, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now John says, when you're trying to figure out who's real, it's obvious. The other is subjective. It's inside. 
I can't see that. John says there's also an objective angle to this, and this is something I can see. And John says it's obvious. Those who are genuinely the child of God will have practical righteousness and tangible love. Now, we're going to get into this next time. We're going to talk about the objective angle in great detail. But this morning, I just want to close by reminding you that Jesus said the same thing in parable form in Matthew chapter 13. He talked about a sower who went out to sow. And he slung his bag of seed over his shoulder, and he went out through the furrows, and he threw the seed all over the place. And Jesus said that seed is the word of God, and the soil is the heart's of people. And he said there are four kinds of soil, four kinds of hearts. The first was the road. Some of the seed fell on the road. Now, Palestine was a farming area. It was full of fields. There were no fences, but in between the properties, they would place paths, and they would walk those paths. This is where Jesus and the disciples were when it says they were walking through the grain fields, plucking the grain and eating it on one of these paths. So he goes out to distribute his seed, and some of the seed falls on the path. It's hard, it's packed, it's dry, it's uncultivated. And the seed that falls there is unable to penetrate the ground because it's so packed down. And Jesus says, the birds come and eat that seed, and the rest of it is trampled underfoot by the people who walk by. Now, who's he talking about? Well, he tells us that he's talking about the unresponsive heart, the person who doesn't understand, the person who is inattentive to the gospel, who is indifferent to the gospel. The gospel just bounces off this person. It cannot penetrate his or her heart. And Satan comes like the birds and he snatches it away. And then he says there's a second kind of soil and a second kind of heart and that's the rocky soil. Now when he's talking about rocky soil, he's not talking about soil full of rocks because that happened all the time and farmers in that day would go through the fields and they would pick up all the rocks and carry them out of the field but in Israel there are many limestone bedrocks and some of them come up close to the surface even inches from the surface and what he's talking about here is that there, he would throw the seed and there would be soil there but the soil would only be a couple inches deep And then under that layer of soil would be a limestone ledge that came up near the surface. And Jesus says as a result, the the plant would spring up immediately. But then when the sun came out, it had no way to get down and get moisture and get nourishment because of that rock ledge that was underneath. And it would wither and it would die. And Jesus tells us that that picture's the superficial heart. This is a person who springs up with joy and says, I love the gospel, that sounds great. 
And then when persecution and affliction arises, what happens? This person withers and falls away. In fact, what's interesting is the second kind of heart is actually harder than the first heart. It's just under the surface a little bit. They have a soft exterior, but down about two inches, there is bedrock that will not let it go in. And then there's a third kind of soil, and that's the weedy soil. He says the the seed falls among weeds, and the weeds have been there a long time. they got deep roots, and the weeds grow up around this plant and smother it out. And Jesus says that pictures the worldly heart. A heart preoccupied with the things of this world, the worries of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. This is a person who is consumed with everything about this age. His career, his house, his car, his wardrobe, his riches, everything about being here consumes him. And the gospel is choked out. Now, the interesting thing about this person is he looks like the rest of the field. He grows up, claims to be a Christian, looks like a Christian, sounds like a Christian, has a lot of foliage, but you know what he doesn't have? Doesn't have any fruit, which introduces the fourth kind of soil, and that is the good soil. Soil that is cultivated and broken and fertile. The seed germinates, the roots go deep, the plant grows and bears fruit. And Jesus says this is the receptive heart. This person hears the word, understands the word, and bears fruit. Some 100, some 60, some 30. Everybody doesn't bear the same amount of fruit, but everybody bears fruit. Now let me ask you something. What's the message of the parable? What's the message of the parable? Well, it should be pretty obvious. Fruit bearing is the bottom line in agriculture. Farmers don't go out and say, nice leaves. Farmers are not looking for foliage. Farmers are looking for fruit. The evidence of good soil is the plant grows up and bears fruit. And the same can be said of salvation. Foliage is not the mark of salvation. Fruit is the mark of salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 17, every good tree bears good fruit. So let me ask you this. Out of the four kinds of soil... Which ones have genuine salvation? I've heard people say Jesus didn't tell us. He didn't tell us. He told us. The only soil that is equivalent to salvation is the good soil. So one-fourth of people are good soil. Why? Because they bear fruit. Some 100, some 60, some 30. See, none of the first three hearts underwent salvation. Proof of salvation is not listening to the message. 
The proof of salvation is not having an emotional response to the message. The proof of salvation is not nice green foliage. The proof of salvation is fruit. And only God can produce fruit in your life. And next week, like I said, we're going to talk about fruit. And we're going to become fruit inspectors. Let me ask you, as we close our service, by taking communion together. The Bible says before you take communion, you're supposed to what? Examine yourself. If you're a believer today, you're welcome to participate. You don't have to be a member of this church to partake. It's the Lord's Supper, but I would tell you, you need to examine yourself as you come to the table. As you do so, let me just ask you, what kind of heart do you have? Is your heart unresponsive? Is your heart superficial? Is your heart worldly? Or is your heart a good heart that is fruitful for the kingdom of God? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you that as we talk about testing ourselves and examining ourselves, it's not about how we get saved. We are saved by grace alone. And we have nothing to do with that. We can't accomplish that and we can't add to that. But we can recognize your grace in our lives. And Father, as we do some personal inventory this morning, I pray that you would challenge our hearts, that we would truly be those people who are real and honest and open and laid bare before you. And as we take communion, we thank you that that's a time when we are called by you to examine ourselves, to shorten our accounts and come before you and get right with you. And Father, as we do that, we give you thanks for Jesus who gave his life for us, and we give him all the praise in his worthy name. Amen.